We're heading into the end of March. Can you believe it? That's kind of freaky. 2021. Where does the time go? Soon we'll all be dead, folks, on an optimistic note. <laughs> One way or the other, it's coming. Hello. I'd like to start things out on an optimistic note like that. This is the QTR Podcast. This podcast, like all my podcasts, is brought to you by my patrons. Patrons are people that sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. I will shout out those patrons. Then I'm going to give you two rules for the podcast, and we're going to get well on our way with my brother, Precious Metals, extraordinaire, general, woke individual that understands finance, Mr. Andy Schechtman, lovely guy too, from Miles Franklin, one of my favorites to have on. So stoked I found this dude on another interview and stole him from somebody else's podcast. This podcast is brought to you by my friends over at JM Bullion. They are my exclusive gold and silver providers. It's the only place that I buy my gold and silver. No lie, no joke, no bullshit. They have done over $3 billion in sales. They have a decade-long track record as being a reputable outlet for silver and gold bullion. They always turn my orders around very quickly. Still very happy with the service I get from JM Bullion and also QTR podcast listeners if you don't want to go through the website and check out their inventory which is usually robust in my experience comparing them to other sites uh, I do tend to think that JM Bullion has a better selection but that could just be me I'm trying to say that from a non-biased standpoint because they support the podcast but um, you know I did some actual due diligence on these guys by placing some orders when they wanted to sign up and become patrons and uh, and I liked what I saw So QTR podcast listeners can actually email Laura, L-A-U-R-A, at jmbullion.com if they're interested in buying gold and silver bullion and you don't want to go through the website. If you want a personalized touch, you have questions, uh, and you want your own, uh, really your own person there to talk to because I can't do any more automated phone systems. I can't do any more, you know, any type of automated online ordering with anything anymore. It feels nice to talk to a person. So talk talk to our friend Laura. Links to all the JM Bullion stuff is in the podcast description. This podcast is also brought to you by my friends Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus, who are the proprietors of a little piece of software that I like to call the Steam Room. I like to call it that because that's what they call it. It is, in my opinion, one of the best pieces of software for tracking unusual options activity and money coming into the illiquid options market, which many times can precede moves in the equities market. Like my friend that sent me a message the other day that Biogen was seeing uh, some big call spread buying, and then some news came out about a patent, and and Biogen you know spiked during the day. Those types of little quote unquote coincidences happen all the time. There's nothing wrong with watching the options market to try to see where the quote unquote informed money is going and making your decisions accordingly. And there's no better way to do that than using the steam room. I love Wall Street Jesus. I love Sang Lucci. I've known these guys. For the better part of a decade, they're honest people. They will work with you. They'll give you a 30-day free trial if you want to sign up. Link to that is in my podcast description. Tell them I sent you. Please. Please. Otherwise, I won't be able to make rent this month. This podcast also brought to you by my friend George Gammon over at the Rebel Capitalist Pro platform. George Gammon, often a guest of the QTR podcast. Also quite woke as it comes to macroeconomics and finance, in my opinion. Again, I'm not a financial advisor and neither is he. But I love his Rebel Capitalist Pro platform where him and Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh get together to talk about the issues and discuss things from the same type of Austrian standpoint and viewpoint that we look at them on this podcast, usually just with a little bit more depth 
uh, than me, probably because he drinks probably a little bit less than I do. So you're going to get a little bit more quality when you back off the brandy a little bit. You can find me over on the Rebel Capitalist Pro forums. I don't know what it costs, but it's so cheap. I think it's like $49 a month or something. You can check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. They do a live Q&A. There's all kinds of great tools. That link is also in my podcast description. This podcast also brought to you by my friend Pete Hedgetus at The Trader's Path. If you're looking for a day trading community, daily watch list, something a little bit more active, a little bit more focused on day trading, go see my buddy Pete Hedgetus over at The Trader's Path. The link to his service, which provides investor education and daily watch lists and weekly scans, uh, and they trade all kinds of markets, red, green, blue, yellow, purple, and brown. They are a uh, non, they don't see color over there at the, uh, at the, what the fuck's it called? Investors, uh, oh Christ, the trader's path. Sorry, Pete. I don't know what to tell you, buddy, other than it's been a long pandemic and my brain is fried, but I love you, Pete, and I know my listeners do too. Your link is also in the podcast description. Pete will give you a free trial too if you check him out over there. This podcast also brought to you by my friends over at Corvus Gold, my friends at Investors Underground and Traders for a Cause, Ken R., Chris Bede, Nicholas Parks, Matthew Zimmer, Jane Binsmeyer, Russ Valenti, Crichton Titus, Camila Soul, thank you. Max Mulvihill, some of my longest-running supporters, Mark Haywood, Kyle Thomas. Mark, you left me a message on uh, YouTube the other day. Thanks, dude. Chris B., Darius Kordonsky, Chris Gerard, Sherlock, and some of my newest patrons, Julie Bissett, Daniel Roby, Bretton Woods, Matthew Allen, Chris H., William Herbert, Billy Brewster back in the house, Lucas Dara, thank you so much. <clears throat> I'm going to shout out three more names. Who will be the lucky fucking three? Uh, how about Austin Clark and the death of... Rats, and, oh, I haven't said that one in a while, and Mike Tocheri. What's up? This podcast has a three-drink minimum. I am not an investment advisor. I hold no licenses, no registrations. I am not recognized by any professional association at all. I've passed no tests. I'm not qualified to do anything, and this is just open discussion for the purposes of just cathartic means. It's my therapy. It's cheaper than paying a therapist. I can get the diarrhea out of my brain and through my mouth and into the microphone. All for benefit of you guys, by the way. My guest, also not a professional financial advisor, I don't think, but none of this is investment advice. And uh, and drink up, because we got Andy Sheckman here. All right, for those of you that have not heard uh, Andy Sheckman on my show before, he's the president and owner of Miles Franklin Precious Metal Investments. Prior to starting Miles Franklin in 1989, he was a licensed financial planner specializing in Swiss franc investments and alternative investments. That was uh, my old job. Uh, Andy, what's going on, brother? Happy to have you on with me today, man. It's been a long time. Chris, man, it's always good to be on with you. Thank you. I follow you uh, closely from afar and uh, always appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. I love your perspective on things, so thanks for having me back. Yeah, likewise. Listen, so uh, the last time I had you on was actually back in October of 2020, and there has been a broad, uh, vast array of things that have occurred since then, and I want to try to tap into uh, a few of these, not the least of which is the, uh, (coughs) excuse me, the, fuck, hold on. (coughs) (laughs) Good start, huh? (laughs) That's all good, brother. I was eating popcorn before we started, and I got a fucking thing of popcorn stuck in my throat. All right. 
I gotta reset that. Hold on. I don't want to. Ah, fuck it. We'll leave it. All right. Um, <laughs> let's talk. Not the least of which is the change in the uh, the political landscape. But uh, let's start first and foremost with what's been going on recently that I wanted to talk to you about, and that is the surge in crypto and the uh, at the same time the pullback in precious metals. So what it appears what appears to be happening is. There appears to be, you know, a wider swath of adoption of crypto here as it's being placed on corporate balance sheets. And even now, I saw Jerome Powell a couple days ago came out and said, hey, Bitcoin is more like gold than it is, you know, an asset or something. So even if he was writing it off to make the comparison, I thought was uh, was quite a statement in and of itself to even just put them in the same sentence together. I mean, uh, I wanted to kind of get your take on it. I mean... Crypto hit all-time highs a couple of weeks ago. Bitcoin was at sixty thousand, uh, and gold has kind of lagged down to to seventeen hundred dollars an ounce. What what's going on, man? What is what is the pulse of of your bullion dealership telling you with regard to crypto? Well, that's that's a that's a deep question, and and I'd like to be able to answer it on both sides, not just the crypto side, but also the pullback in metals and and address that, but. You know, when I look at the the broader adoption of cryptos, I I think to me it speaks of an awakening by the public to to the the, the evisceration of, of fiat currency. Right. You know, Chris, it, it took Chris, it took this country about three hundred years to create under a billion dollars, or excuse me, under a trillion dollars in wealth, about eight hundred billion in wealth for almost 300 years and and what is happening now with the currencies and and the massive creation of currency really since february or, or excuse me september of 2019 you know uh is is i think it's a reaction to that type of an environment people are waking up to uh what's happening with the currency and they're looking for alternatives and it's expressing itself first and foremost in cryptocurrency. Now, I guess from a broader perspective, this would have been one of my greater concerns, at least for the industry over the last several years, was since 2017, was the adoption uh, of cryptocurrency, was the um, uh, the acceptance of cryptocurrency as a alternative form of investment, as a uh, alternative form of 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 wealth i guess and um i i wondered how that would affect the precious metals industry to me i think first and foremost that there doesn't need to be an either or i think cryptocurrency there's a place for it and i think it's here to stay i am not really a cryptocurrency aficionado although i own some and uh, i too am impressed with with the velocity at which things have have moved up uh but you know, to me, the greater picture is of what it really means for the value of the dollar and people understanding and being awoken to uh, what's happening with currencies. And as I mentioned, this would have been a much greater concern of mine, really, had it not be for the Wall Street Silver Group, who I've been very um, fond of, of of their members and getting to know the, the folks who started it and, and the mission behind them. You know, the guy that started it's 24 years old. Ivan, he's a young guy. And what you are seeing with their massive expansion of, of membership is an awakening as well and an understanding as well 
by by the younger generations, the Gen Z and and the uh, millennials, who have surprised me with their coordination, with their um, with with the way they've rallied behind uh, not only what happened with GameStop, but but also what with an understanding of of silver in particular. And I think you know there are a lot of people out there who are understanding that to me anyways, and I think this is starting to permeate, is that you know, cryptocurrency certainly offers unique opportunities to get wealthy. But I think the message that the folks at, at Wall Street Silver, the Reddit group, uh, are trying to permeate is that gold and silver are wealth. And you can become very wealthy with cryptocurrencies. And I think everyone should have some cryptocurrencies in their portfolio. But the mistake that is often made especially in things that move up so rapidly is the assumption and belief that they go forever, ignore and defy gravity and move up forever. Uh, I would, I would make the analogy to playing blackjack in a casino. And if you win some hands and you're doing real well, you sit at the table long enough, you're going to walk out poor and broke. You take some chips off the table each time you win a hand and stick them in your pocket in this case, buy some real wealth, gold and silver, some historical wealth with those profits, you leave the casino with money in your pocket. You leave the casino ahead. And I think life is all about analogies. And whether this analogy to some people is appropriate or not, I've been around the block for 31 years. I've seen markets mm. rise. I've seen markets fall. I've seen bull markets go higher than anyone think possible and then retrace 50% or greater in a blink of an eye. And I think that I think that the moral of the story here, Chris, is that there's definitely a place for crypto. And if I could if I could appeal to people who are doing well in crypto, it would be that, yeah, you know, it doesn't have to be either or. It should be both. And if you want to build your metals portfolio without spending any money, take some profits off the table, put some chips in your pocket, and cash them in, in, in the form of historical wealth in gold and silver while retaining your initial investment or more in the cryptocurrencies. And so at the same time, you're building your wealth, you're also retaining it. And uh, now <clears throat> to your second point, when we talk about how the metals have retraced, I'd like to, to call your attention to the fact that, you know, when we talked in October, I, I told you, and, and, the, and the first time we talked, I have had a similar narrative of talking about central bank acquisition and commercial bank acquisition and a big money acquiring precious metals, um, and and it's it's true, it, it's 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 happening, no question about it. And you know, when we look at what's happening behind the scenes, we see massive amounts of metal being drawn off the COMEX market by a third group of reportables on the COMEX exchange called the others. And this is continuing. These others are thought to be sovereign wealth funds and family offices. And here again in the March delivery contract that, that uh, started at the end of February, we see somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 or 55 million ounces of silver pulled off of the COMEX market. We see somewhere in the neighborhood of 90 million ounces of silver backdoored out of SLV by the commercial banks uh, after, they let it, after they let it fill up the beginning of February, which I'm going to talk about in one second, uh, at extreme levels to the most silver that's ever been put in in a two-day period ever. Then they knock the price down, and that's really what I want to talk about here in a second. 
they knocked the price down, and then over the preceding three or four weeks, backdoor 90 million ounces of silver out of SLV, and the only people that can take silver out of SLV are the authorized participants. These are the commercial banks that fund it to begin with. So they fill it up with record demand at high prices approaching $30, and then they drive the price down by dumping two years' worth of global mine supply, one and a half billion ounces of silver, at the open, in between the New York close and the New York open, in the access market, they dump this amount of silver, uh, which would guarantee the worst possible execution. And in the real world, Chris, this guy would be fired and then prosecuted and then probably shot. And to the point where when you dump uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of $45 billion worth of silver, in the most thinly traded market, it is specifically done for effect because at that time, not only did you have record volume going into the ETFs, uh, at that time, every major precious metals company in the United States was shut down due to massive demand. In fact, my company that Saturday shut down for the first time in 31 years ever. Let me just touch on that for a second. The market goes to sleep at night. Um, on Friday nights at around 4.30 Central Time here in Minnesota. Uh, it wakes back up on Sunday at 5 o'clock Central Time. The rest of the time, the rest of the week, the market is open as it travels around the globe, but it sleeps over the weekend. Uh, typically on a Friday night, my head trader will ask me, what do I got? Play? I have any interviews planned? Is there anything I need to know about into the weekend? Because what they will do to prepare what he will do to prepare is to go long a certain number of contracts, both gold and silver, into the weekend so that we are able to sell over the weekend right. and hedge the position, right. right? So that Friday night, like February 1st, right around that time, my trader right before the market closes says, listen, I see that there's this wicked demand and you got all these interviews. At that time, Chris, I was in Florida. Uh, I went there for a vacation, a 10-day vacation. I never left the house. We were in an Airbnb on the beach. I left one day, and that was to go to the other side of Florida to buy a home. I'm leaving Minnesota for a plethora of reasons, although our corporate office will stay here because what it means to, uh, to the business to be Minnesota accredited. But I myself am moving to Florida, and when I was there, the demand was so off the charts, Chris, that my entire family was out on the beach for nine straight days. I never left the house, not once. Uh, and, and <laughs> that was the I weekend did. I, I texted you, right? And I was like, yes, hey, was. how you feel? That was the weekend when everyone, the silver squeeze hashtag yes. went fucking viral that weekend. And Friday, it was like kind of a thing. But by Sunday at that uh, Globex Open, I was like, holy shit, this is going to be wild. Yes, and so it was. In fact, uh, one of my buddies texted me that day and said, did you talk to, to Chris Irons? Because I swear that sounds like something you would say. I said, <laughs> like, yeah, and I said, in fact, that's verbatim what I said to him. Anyway, so, um, so on Friday I said, yes, you should probably buy a little bit more than normal. So he bought 11 contracts on Friday at the close. That's 55,000 ounces of silver. And... Um, Friday evening comes along, and I see all the major online companies, JM Bullion, SD Bullion, Atmex, they're all closed. Now, I looked at their their items, and it looked like they were all out of stock. And at first, I wondered, geez, could they really be all out of stock? Is that what the problem is? And upon further reflection, it dawned on me that they were shutting down for the same reason we were. For the first time in 31 years, Saturday morning, I shut down. 
about 12 hours after they all shut down. And the reason I did that was that my trader called me Saturday morning. He says, Andy, you know, for God's sakes, man, do you realize that we sold 90,000 ounces of silver last night? You are 35,000 ounces naked short into uh, the open Sunday <laughs> night. And, you know, he's like, there are people talking gap up of $10 an ounce. That's $350,000 that we're going to take on the chin. What do, what do you want me to do? I said, shut it down. Uh, when the market opened Sunday, it did gap up, but luckily not too much. It went, only cost us $40,000 in loss in order to hedge that position. All A lot of the business we did over the weekend was for not because of that. But the point of it is, is that in an environment where it's going nuts, where you're texting me, where all the online companies are closed, where it's the first time in 31 years we close operations because of of uh, demand and and uncertainty into the open when the COMEX or excuse me the ETFs are blowing up with demand who in their right mind who in their right mind would dump one and a half billion ounces of silver at the open instead of bleeding it out over several days or weeks or hours at least instead of dumping it when everyone's sleeping what that was was a drive-by shooting it's an act of desperation by a, a cartel that is, is on the ropes, whereby they are being inundated, inundated, I believe, with, uh, with demand, not only from an industrial side, which we should talk about, but also now an expanding um, investment side, a monetary side, where you have people in all corners of the globe acquiring about and accumulating physical silver. And I think it was a drive-by shooting to freak all those Reddit people out, to freak all the people out who were trying to overrun SLV, uh, and, and it did a good job. But as you can see, they have to expend much more in the way of, of, of effort. They need to dump almost two years' worth of global mine supply in, at the open. They have to, to do a whole lot more to create a whole lot less of effect. And so if I could sum it all up to your great question, which was certainly a big question to answer, it is that there is a place for crypto that doesn't have to be either or. Crypto is a once in a generation opportunity to get wealthy. But with that wealth, you know, I've always said, making money is a whole hell of a lot easier, Chris, than keeping it. And so if you make all this money on paper in crypto, remember, pigs get fed and hogs get slaughtered. Take some of those chips off the table. Throw some black chips in your pocket cash them in at the window and do it in the form of 6,000 year old wealth. And that would be gold and silver and look at them as a symbiotic relationship instead of an either or relationship. And if those out there who are sitting on lots of crypto profits, look at it that way, not only will I think they uh, be happy that they did, but uh, I think it portrays very well for the prices ultimately of, of precious metals when the investment side is going to take center stage, I think, moving forward uh, and and really propel metals based upon an imbalance in supply and demand to levels that most people don't think possible. Yeah, it's funny. <clears throat> you know, I get a lot of shit from people because I ask a lot of critical questions about crypto in comparison to gold. And I think all things being equal out of the two of them, I would much rather own gold simply for, you know, for a number of reasons. It's it's far less volatile. It's got a longer track record. You know, it's got industrial use. It's a commodity. It's tangible. You know, so th there's a million reasons why I prefer gold 
over crypto. And I get a fair amount of shit about it on Twitter because I do publicly ask a lot of pointed skeptical questions about crypto, which I think is necessary if you're going to have the Socratic dialogue necessary to try to whittle away at whether or not this is going to be something that is going to be uh, a uh, a long-term asset class, right? And so you raise some interesting points that I want to comment on. You know, the first is this idea that crypto can coexist with precious metals, which to me makes more sense than Bitcoin overtaking gold. You know, there's a lot of euphoria in the crypto space, a lot of it. You know, there's a lot of arrogance, there's a lot of hubris, there's a lot of uh, just general idiocy. I mean, there's there's crypto advocates that think that people like yourself and myself that, oh, we just don't understand it, and that's the problem. Uh, there's people that, you know, conflate Bitcoin with blockchain and say that because blockchain has value, Bitcoin has to have value. There's all these interesting arguments that have yet to reach a terminus, like trying to figure out, you know, where Bitcoin came from, who was Satoshi Nakamoto. People say, well, it doesn't matter because everything's open source, so we know what it is. But yeah, it does kind of matter, you know, from a political example. There's all these open-ended questions about, you know, AML and KYC and, uh, you know, whether or not uh, you know, FinCEN and regulators are going to allow Bitcoin to be transacted the way that it is, whether they'll legitimize it by regulating it or whether they will delegitimize it by regulating it. So there's a million open-ended questions, that, and that's why I'm constantly trying to have that dialogue. Now, with that being said, what I've said for a while and what you just touched on, which I think is a very cogent point, is the law of large numbers is going to start to apply to Bitcoin. And so that is something I'm constantly bringing up. The higher the price goes, the more risk there is uh, in the price. The uh, the more, uh, again, the, the asset has to kind of abide by these laws of large numbers. And so the idea of a rotation out of Bitcoin into something like gold and silver can really, you know, an analog for that is really just a rotation from growth to value stocks. I mean, it's it's not a perfect analog, but it is a analog, right? You're you're rotating out of this speculative asset that has, yes, it's gone apeshit, but past performance is not indicative of future results, as everybody in the financial industry knows. Um, and like you said, put, putting the black chip in your pocket, I like the uh, the analog. You've obviously been to a casino. I knew exactly what you were talking about by saying that. Um, you know, putting the putting those black chips in your pocket while you play with the rest of the stuff out on the table. Um, And I think that rotation is going to happen. And I think it's going to happen. And that is going to be something that drives gold and silver through the roof. One more thing I'll comment on is I think that all of your points about the younger generation recognizing the problem with fiat speaks to this idea of, you know, I've called it right right problem wrong solution when uh, you know when talking about bitcoin sometimes let's say bitcoin can be you know has gotten too big to fail which i agree is is a good bull case for it or the fact that it is become you know adopted widely which i agree is a, a good bull case for it the idea that the bitcoiners are starting to understand the reasoning behind why people are critical of fiat is the most important thing. From yes. there, they'll take the back door into precious metals eventually. Yes. That's fine. Yes. And we're coming from the other way, right? We're precious metals heads that are that have all these really, uh, 
you know, um, uh, really uh, good arguments, for lack of a better word, good arguments against central banking and against fiat. So we're coming in through the other door. But but similarly, you got all these 18, 20, 22, 24-year-olds that understand this big problem with central banks that has never been has never been widely understood by a younger generation. So, I mean, I think long-term that portends very well for precious metals and and possibly, like you said, well for crypto as well. That's the key to it all, Chris, is that, you know, is is you don't have to spend, uh, you know, 50 grand a year going to college. You have, by listening to people like you and others out there, uh, uh, a college college level education in economics and in 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 finance for free, and the amount of of understanding of and education uh, that is is permeating uh, throughout the ecosystem is really the differentiation here. Is that when I started in this industry uh, in 1989? I mean that was before the internet, and the people that I were talking to were your grandparents' age, the World War II vets, and um, you know, and and as time rolled on, I began to wonder if if this was an asset class that was reserved for central banks and and uh, royalty, because most people here in the states uh, really had very little uh, understanding. One of the things that I talk about a lot is that in 1980, uh, the Dow Jones was at 850, and that's the last time it crossed with gold at 850, one to one relationship. At that time, no one wanted gold coins. I mean, no one wanted Dow stocks. They just wanted gold coins and silver dollars. And the allocation to people's portfolios in terms of precious metals and across the entire United States financial matrix from Joe Sixpack on the street to the Harvard Endowment Fund was 8%. In other words, 8% of of a typical uh, investment portfolio across the entire United States had 8% metals in it. Uh, as we move forward 40 years to December 2020 before COVID ruined everyone's life, uh, that number was one half of 1%. And I would argue that we are regressing rapidly to the mean of 2.5%, where, you know, just 2.5% of assets in precious metals represents a five-fold increase in demand. And well, that's one of the things that we're seeing I mean, I'm working 18 hours a day and have for the past 13 months as God is my witness. I have not taken a day off in 13 months, seven days a week, 15 plus hours a day, every day. And that is not indicative of the price. I want that to be very clear. Just like the stock market is not indicative of the underlying economy, the underlying price of metals is in no way indicative of the insatiable worldwide demand. That will change but what really has changed in 1989 when i started in this industry before the internet information was a snail's pace to the public now you have world-class information worthy of a college education in finance that is being you know disseminated to the public by guys like you and you know you can see the threat that that becomes to to the, the elite as well as as everyone has had to battle censorship in 2020, which to me was one of the more disheartening things that I saw in my life really in 2020 was you know, the blatant disregard for the First Amendment and for uh, censoring, even if people say, well, you know, it's on a private uh, system like, like a private company like 
like YouTube, but you know, YouTube uh, on one hand says, well, you know, if Chris Iron says something, uh, we're not responsible for what he says. You know, this is just a platform where people can speak. But on the other hand, if that's really what they say, then they shouldn't be able to censor. Uh, and so the bottom line is, is that that censorship is is certainly making it more challenging for people to get the information out. But I digress simply to say that the awakening by the mainstream and by the younger generations is one of the most uh, encouraging things I've ever seen in 31 years. You have and whether it's because and as like you said, we will meet somewhere inside the, the doorway, whether you're coming to it from a standpoint of, you know, euphoria and, and greed on, on one end. Uh, and I say greed because we're motivated by greed and by fear. So we're more on the fear side. They're more on the greed side. But we will meet in the middle because, you know, the crazier the world gets uh, and and the, the more denigration that we see to the fiat system, people will wake up to to not just cryptocurrencies, but also 5,000-year-old wealth of precious metals. And so they should coexist. And, and we should. We are largely speaking the same thing. It's just that people's primary focus, I think, in cryptocurrencies is of, uh, you know, making money. It's about appreciation. And my main focus with precious metals is, is retention of uh, capital and uh, preservation. And so, you know, like I said, pulling some chips off the table and putting them in your pocket guarantees you walk away a winner. If you just leave them on the table all along now, uh, you know, odds are, are not in your favor any longer. So, yeah, I think that the greater awakening and the understanding of, of preserving and not being a hog who gets slaughtered, but rather a pig who gets fed, it's a way to win. And, and we should all be on the same team and realize we're fighting against a, a system that is, is destroyed. Look, they created $9 trillion in wealth since September of 2019, $4 trillion in a matter of a few months, $2 trillion on Biden's new, or new um, uh, uh, stimulus program. Uh, and, and they will do an infrastructure program and they'll continue to create money. You have $8 trillion worth of government debt that is coming due this year that they'll either... Most of them, it, most of it isn't being rolled over, so they'll have to come to grips with it at some point. My point to you is this: a trillion seconds ago was thirty-one thousand six hundred eighty-eight years ago. That's a trillion seconds. The numbers are so big, Chris, that in the end, people who own cryptocurrencies will be happy. People who own precious metals will be happy. The one big difference is that for five thousand years, through uh, every pandemic, through uh, German hyperinflation, through the Great Depression. Precious metals has retained wealth, and it will be wealth in the year 3000 as well, no matter what happens. I don't know that we can say that about all the cryptocurrencies. Maybe some of them will still be there. Maybe some of them, some of them will be central to the way business is transacted. But uh, in general, uh, I, I think the people, if they take away anything from my viewpoint, is that it should not be an either-or, and we're all mm -hmm. on the same side, fighting the same battle, just in different ways. Yeah, and just like the central bank shit show here is really unprecedented, the idea that the mainstream is catching on to exactly how it works is, uh, it's really, it's not precedented. It's it, it's really something in and of itself. For instance, I said a couple of weeks ago that I was thinking about leaving Twitter, 
right? For a couple of reasons. One is, you know, I've had enough with the censorship nonsense too. But like there, there is a part of me that feels like I've said what needs to be said. I would continue doing the podcast because I love talking to people like you and getting perspective on all these things that I'm interested in. So it's kind of a selfish thing for me. But, uh, but I don't need to be, I don't feel like I need to be out there opining on everything uh, all the time anymore. Because even just in the last two and a half years, or really, you know, I've been on Twitter, I think, probably eight years now. But the last two and a half, I say three, four years, it seems like people are catching on. With Bitcoin, it seemed like that understanding got kicked into fucking hyperdrive. And people are really starting to get it. And so I think to myself, well, Chris, are you just like, are you just being egotistical and thinking like, wow, you know, it's kind of caught up. Are you just imagining things? Is it possible that three years ago people understood it the way that they do now? You know, just kind of thinking in my head, like, am I making a good argument for for getting off Twitter? And and I think to myself, no, because, you, you know, if you were to kind of draw two intersecting lines hitting, you know, where, where they intersect and the point being when the public starts to understand and and from there hold central banks accountable for their actions, um, those two lines are, you know, how bad has the quantitative easing gotten, right? It's arguably the worst that it's ever been. So it's the most apparent it could ever possibly be that the Fed is distorting markets. It's never been clearer objectively. And then the other line is, Okay, well, how many people understand that system? How many people understand what's going on? And that used to be one of those things, like you said, well, you'd have to go to university or you'd have to listen to some obscure podcast. You know, you have to read a Peter Schiff book or, or something to kind of understand it. And it was this, you know, kind of little. But the fact that Bitcoin, for better or for worse, has generated all this speculation from all of these, you know, many very unsophisticated market participants who are looking, like you said, to just try to make a quick buck. It's like the greed has motivated people to all of a sudden inform themselves. And so you're seeing this insane acceleration of adoption in terms of understanding how the system works. And so it really is, it really, really could be a a huge cornerstone in terms of, um, like I said, not just understanding it, but what does that mean, Andy? It means that A, people be more likely to hold the government and central banks accountable and B it could mean that this younger generation you know they're going to start to permeate into the political spectrum at some point too right this is motivating a whole new group of you know young libertarians that that want sound money that want to you know hold the fed accountable and so it, it really is uh, it's a very special time it is well and, and don't think that you haven't uh, that, that this hasn't caught the eye of the central bankers I mean, I, I think even in, in what Powell said the other day, is we, pers- we, we central bankers prefer not to call them cryptocurrencies, but crypto assets. And I will caution all the people out there who think that Bitcoin can go to the moon, just simply to remember one thing. The precious metals market is way bigger than the Bitcoin market in terms of global uh, a global footprint. And, you know, Bitcoin, the reason that Miles Franklin or any other precious metals company is able to accept payment for metals in Bitcoin is also its Achilles heel, and that is that it is traded on the COMEX. And as a contract, I can hedge my exposure to it. Now, I'm not speaking negatively of it. I happen to believe Bitcoin is for real. But do not think that a motivated commercial bank or or Federal Reserve or whoever is behind pulling the strings could not drop the hell out of it real quick. 
if they wanted to, just the way that they did by dumping two years' worth of global mine supply at the open uh, in silver. If they want to, and that's all paper, they can drop paper contracts on Comex too and freak everyone out and create margin calls and get people selling. And, you know, nothing goes to the moon forever. And uh, I do think that there needs to be an understanding that this awakening has caught the central banker's eye as well. And I think that they're very concerned about this. Uh, when we talk they would about, have to be, right? I mean, it's unprecedented that, that anybody would hold their feet to the fire the way that, the way that it's been happening, right? So when we talk about a greater awakening by the public, that means a greater level of concern by the people who have been hiding the truth from the public for a very, very long time. And, uh, you know, as an example, when we talk about what the Fed has been doing regarding massive quantitative easing, most people would believe that that is highly inflationary. And in normal times it would be, but actually it's very deflationary. When we talk about the actual mechanics of it, let's talk about that just for a second so people can understand where we're probing with said Fed coin uh, and why the Federal Reserve wants a Fed coin. In that same speech that Powell talked about Bitcoin, he talked about the Fed has been researching uh, a, their own Fed coin cryptocurrency. And while we're not there yet, he said, he's full of shit, uh, they're very close to it. And here's the, <laughs> here's the reason why, okay? Uh, when you talk about uh, quantitative easing, what that means is, is that, first of all, now, I would argue that we are beginning to see a marriage between Janet Yellen, who used to be the Fed chairman and is now the Secretary of Treasury, to uh, to the Fed. They they are being they're merging together, and we'll talk about that at the end of what I'm saying here. But when you when you look at the way the system is constructed, the Treasury issues bonds to pay for their spending, uh, and you know you got Janet Yellen saying. Uh, we need to go big because interest rates are so low. You got the IMF saying everyone should spend, spend, spend. And you have Powell who says we'll be accommodating to get do whatever needs to be done. In essence, I guess what that means to me is that you're going to have the the um, the Treasury spend by creating bonds. The Fed will buy it to pay for the, the workings of the Fed. That is modern monetary theory where the Fed is paying for the daily workings of the U.S. government. But Let's just talk about what quantitative easing really means. And it means that when the, the Treasury creates bonds uh, that, that um, go into the, into the marketplace, the Fed can't buy them directly yet. That would be uh, monetization, and that's Weimar Republic. So instead what happens is basically the commercial banks will buy those bonds from the Treasury and hold them on their balance sheet. If the Fed comes calling and says, we want those bonds, by law, they're obliged to sell them to the Federal Reserve. So the Federal Reserve pushes a button and creates money out of nowhere. <laughs> Boom, there's money. And with that money, they are able to buy government securities like Fannie, Freddie, and Treasuries. Um, they have since, because of, of what's happened over the last year, expanded into corporate bonds and uh, and government, or excuse me, and corporate paper, which... Uh, which is, which is another issue altogether. But in general, what they are able to do is buy Fannie, Freddie, and U.S. Treasuries. So they go to the banks and they say, sell me your Treasuries. Uh, the, tre uh, the Treasuries get uh, sold back to the banks or to the Fed. Now, when the Fed does that, the act of buying those bonds, those Treasuries and those bonds, that does two things. One, it stabilizes the bond market, and number two, or, or levies it, 
And number two, it, it pushes interest rates down. And when you have as much debt as we have, low interest rates is really where all the manipulation lies because it, it, it creates a perception or an illusion of wealth that our 401k is worth more and our house value is worth more because if you are able to, you know, buy a house at 2%, what level of a house can you buy at 4% or at 5% or at 8%? It decreases rapidly. Not only does it, does it uh, uh, enrich us, the wealth effect with low interest rates, but the higher the interest rates go, it blows up the entire system uh, because you have uh, positively correlated markets right now that used to be inversely correlated. Stocks and bonds were all obviously always inversely correlated risk on risk off it was called now they are positively correlated so the fed comes in creates money out of thin air buys the bonds from the commercial banks who bought them from the the treasury and then uh the that money that would go to the commercial banks um is put into instead going directly to the commercial banks it goes to a reserve account in the commercial bank's name at the fed now the commercial banks have two options. Once they have sold their bonds and that money goes into a reserve account at the Fed in their name, they have two options. Because remember, what has happened so far is that the, the bond prices go up, interest rates go down. They move inverse of each other. Those interest rates stimulate the market because uh, you have uh, low interest rate, fixed income is dead, people go into the stock market, and the only people really getting that money these days are the people who don't need it, the hedge funds who take the money at next to nothing and buy equities and, and watch them go higher and higher and higher, even though it does not is not justified by the economy behind it. It's the tail wagging the dog. The economy behind it should say, well, the economy should or the stock market should be much lower. But that is not the case because of this quantitative easing. So anyways, the money's in a reserve account, right? The, the, the banks have two options. They can either lend it into existence, and the only people that are they're lending it to, as I mentioned, are the people who don't need it, like the hedge funds, or they leave it at the Fed because they don't want to lend it into the economy that has been eviscerated, where companies are hanging on by a thread or have already gone bankrupt or are on the verge of filing bankruptcy, where mass foreclosures and bankruptcies and uh, companies that are really just, you know, walking dead, they don't want to make those loans. Instead, they'd rather keep it uh, on, on the Fed's balance sheet in a reserve account in their name with safety earning what we have right now, 150 basis points or what have you on the 10-year treasury, instead of earning two or three times that by lending it out to mm -hmm. a company trying to start a new small business or a restaurant owner trying to keep his doors open or whatever it may be. So what I'm getting at is this. When you buy the bonds and pull them out of circulation the way the Fed is doing, that is deflationary. You are sucking liquidity out of the market. What normally happens is that those commercial banks who then sold the bonds will take that money and lend it into existence in spades. And everybody wins at that rate, at that level. The banks are, 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 are able to uh, uh, you know, make much more than the money that the Fed will pay them by lending it into existence. But the risk is too great for the banks to want to do that. So what you have is no velocity. Money is only created in the United States by being lent into existence. Right. Yes, the money is created by the Fed to buy the bonds, 
But unless it's lent into existence, that's as far as it goes. And it goes right back to the Fed in a reserve account with the only result being lowering of interest rates and stabilization of the bond market. In this case, the only lending are going to the big money centers who don't need it because their balance sheets are good enough uh, on itself to further inflate the bubble in equities. So the bottom line is the Fed is pissed off. The Fed says, well, if the <laughs> banks aren't going to play ball with us, then fuck them. We'll go around them and we'll, we'll ask Congress for the Banking for All Act, which basically says we want to have a, a digital Fed dollar. Now, if that happens, what that basically means is instead of money being lent into existence uh, the way that it is, has been forever in this country through, through the lending process, buying a new home, a new car, a college education, whatever you do, when you get that loan, you've just created money. Then you take that money and go give it to a, a home builder who puts it in their bank account. Boom, more money has just been created. So when, when you look at it that way, the Fed is like, listen, uh, if the banks aren't going to play ball and lend this money into existence, which, which is a, a crusher on velocity, which means there is no inflation, just a lot more money creation that's held up at the Fed, they're going to want to have a Fed coin. That Fed coin, its main thrust uh, on top of uh, removal of all privacy will be to spend money into existence. Right. So they can give everyone money right into their Fed wallet, which now means everyone's got money in their Fed wallet. And if they really want to create velocity, they have two tools there. They can impose negative interest rates, nominal negative interest rates. Right. We already have negative interest rates on real terms. Or a time limit, uh, right? Or a time limit, exactly. If they put that time limit on there, and then they say, okay, everyone was just given $5,000 here November 1st. If you don't spend it by Christmas Day it, it, uh, on some sort of retail pr uh, item, it's gone. People may think that that sounds make-believe, but it's not. It, they could easily do this and that's if they super that's how they super yes, that's how they get their monetary pot yes and why do they want inflation to to be able to handle an ever-increasing mountain of debt that has been accumulated at the lowest interest rates in human history they cannot service the debt the way uh the, the system is right now it's either print inflate or default it's inflate or die one or the other and I guarantee you they will choose the path of inflation over austerity and defaulting. Uh, certainly, oh, yeah. if, they ever uh, if not, be, if not know. for any other reason, because people don't understand it. Austerity, people understand. You know, uh, when, uh, when austerity occurs, people get it. It's it, it smacks them right across the face. But if they inflate away the debt, that's nefarious enough to happen in the background where people don't really understand how it's happening and what the effect's <laughs> going to be on the average citizen. And uh, so that I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Look, I want to I want to loop back real quick, though. And the reason I'm kind of interjecting is uh, we, we talked a little bit about this in October. So I want to I want to and I want to go back to something that's new that you brought up uh, about 15 minutes ago. And I don't want to lose my train of thought on it. Sure. But we, sure. when you were talking about the uh, hitting the bid in the silver market, in the COMEX silver market, um, I just. I happen to notice, you know, at like 8 or 8.30 every morning, there's always a huge dump in the precious metals. Are we talking about the same thing or am I completely off base or am I just fucking imagining that? I mean, I feel like 
I feel like every day there is a dump in the precious metals market, usually about an hour before the cash open in the stock market. Are you talking about the same thing, or am I conflating? Yes, that is, that is, that, no, you are not. In fact, there's a guy named Dimitri Speck. Uh, a lot of the speeches that I would give publicly uh, over the last few years when we were still allowed to go to conferences uh, centered around this exact topic. And there's a man named Dimitri Speck uh, who is a hell of a chartist, and um, he has shown, he, he, I would, I would, put a chart up on the screen when I would speak and it would show a 10 years worth of trading um, jammed into one chart and and it would take the price every day over 10 years and if you you know you call that uh, 2,000 trading days jammed into one chart and it would show three things as it pertained to the precious metals market well two things really the, the two biggest things were the AM and the PM fix and all of that information on one chart would show at the AM fix, which is about 2.30 in the morning, 99% of the time goes straight down. And then the PM fix, which is what you're talking about, which is indeed right around 8.30 in the morning Eastern time, it takes a shit and it just dumps. And it enters into New York almost exclusively after being hit and then works its way back up into Asia where it's positive and it starts all over again as it hits London, where in the AM fix, it's knocked down. And in the PM fix before London, it gets crammed. That is the period of time when when 1.5 billion ounces of silver was dumped onto the marketplace at the greatest level of demand that I have ever seen in 30 years, to the point where all of the online companies, all the precious metals companies were shut down because there was too much demand. Some genius thinks we should dump it all at that point right there. That's exactly right. In other words, it's mope. It's management of perception economics. It shows great desperation by by the people who are trying to not let the metal price run away. And the London Gold Pool showed that the only way you can successfully manipulate a market over a period of time is to push it in the direction it is going as it failed, as will this too, because you have a greater understanding and awakening about de-dollarization about what is happening and about the ability to protect yourself so yes that is exactly what you're talking about that is exactly what you're seeing and it is a very manipulative practice where it enters new york more more often than not uh, uh after just being beaten down and tries its best to claw back up throughout the day and uh and that is definitely not how markets free markets work i can promise you that so let's talk about the silver squeeze thesis because this whole thing is new since last we spoke <clears throat> we've never talked yeah. about it right and i know that you're an expert in this because the reason i wanted to have you on the first podcast i did with you last year is because i heard you on palisades gold radio which is another great podcast that i recommend very highly uh and you were talking about silver now Earlier, you mentioned that you wanted to talk about industrial demand also, too. Uh, I'd like to know what's new over the last six months since we've last talked and what's changed in the, uh, you know, in terms of industrial focus and industrial demand of precious metals as commodities. Mm -hmm. um, but also, too, wrap up what your thoughts are about this idea uh, a, a silver squeeze. Is it possible? So many people say the precious metal market is so big, 
it could never happen. It couldn't happen like it happened with GameStop because, you know, the precious metals market is so much bigger than going in and trying to, you know, GameStop's an $11 billion stock right now, right? So you could actually push it around with a couple hundred million dollars. Uh, What do you make of the whole situation? Well, taking on a hedge fund with, uh, you know, several million Reddit users is a whole hell of a lot easier than taking on the Comex and a bunch of bullion banks like Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan and Citi and you know, that's a whole different animal altogether. I guess let, let me answer your que- the second question first, and that is that uh, I think to blow up the COMEX from investment demand is foolhardy because the Hunt brothers showed that in 1980 where they realized there were more contracts issued by a long shot than there were bars in the warehouse. And so what they attempted to do was buy up the contracts and take delivery. Well, the COMEX didn't take kindly to that. They first jacked up margin limits uh, um, margin requirements and then they changed the rules and said that you can only be long a certain number number of contracts you can be short unlimited which makes no sense but it basically meant that all of the contracts they had bought or many of them were now in an illegal position they were forced to sell them or go to jail and that's what drove down the price so my my inclination is that the COMEX will take care of the COMEX first and those are also the, the big banks that are part of it and they'll do that by changing the rules. They will. They they do have the right to cash settle, which means at at, at some point, instead of all out default, they can just say a you can't be long, b we're going to jack up margin requirements, and if you push it too far, we'll cash settle. Well, right. a cash settlement is indeed, in my opinion, an admission of 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 default. And right. I, I, let make sure I come back to this point because I want to talk to you about what's happening on Comex right now. Uh, and I'll come back to that because what's happening right now to me is, is the rats leaving the ship. And I want to talk about that. But back to the, your first question about what's new industrially. Look, there are no commodities on the planet, to my knowledge, that are as unique as silver from that perspective. It's really the only asset commodity that is bracketed on either side with copious demand uh on one end you have this new phenomenon of of um uh, of monetary demand where you got reddit and you got all these people globally waking up to uh to protection of of wealth through precious metals but industrially first of all let's talk about silver first of all real quick uh geologically it's found in, in the ground in a form called epithermal, really close to the surface. So the big deposits were found years ago, long before the advent of advanced imagery. You have a situation where what is coming out of the ground right now globally, in terms of the 800 million ounces a year mined, pretty darn close over the last several, um, 70% of it comes from byproduct mining. That's 70%, about 560 million ounces come as a byproduct of mining other metal like gold and copper and tin and what have you, uh, 30% of it comes from the actual silver, the dedicated silver mines. And, and the reason that there's such a large disparity is because the fact that most of the low-lying fruit was picked a long, long time ago. Um, and so you have a situation where globally uh, those those miners globally are pulling a gold and silver ratio or a mining ratio out of the ground, silver out of the ground at eight to one ratio. 
meaning for every ounce of gold that they mine, eight ounces of silver are mined. The beginning of time, it was 16 to 1 for thousands of years, and it's priced right now at close to 70 to 1. I had a, a discussion publicly with Keith Newmeyer not too long ago. You can find it on my YouTube channel where he's the CEO of First Majestic. He's a brilliant dude and one of the only mining executives who's not a geologist. He's a businessman. And, he, and I said to him at the time, it was 80 to 1. I said, Keith, what do you think of this 80 to 1 ratio? And well, he said, well, I, uh, I don't think about the ratio as much as most people do, Andy. I look at the mining ratio, which is 8 to 1. And I said, well, geez, how long do you think it can be sold at 80 to 1? He says, well, you tell me, man. He says, how far, how long can we mine something at 80 to 1, or excuse me, at 8 to 1, and sell it at 80 to 1? It just doesn't work. And so from a, from a standpoint of supply, uh, you know, last year was 330 or 40 million ounces deficit. We, we consumed over a billion and billion two, billion three ounces and mined 800 million the year before. It was about 250 million shortfall. And last year, that shortfall was with half of industry shut down and locked in their basement. Right, right, right. So what happens when that accentuates? Now, about what's happened since we talked. Well, you got Joe Biden talking about a green new agenda, uh, and that would be a, a thrust away from combustion engines into battery like Tesla. Uh, and, and so the need for silver there is incredible. You're talking about a market that prior to this, 20% of all global mine supply went into solar panels. And now you have uh, a new uh, agenda of moving more and more and more into green, like solar and wind. And wind actually takes a lot of silver also, surprisingly, into battery power. Uh, don't forget things like like a Panasonic and, and uh, um, Apple and, and Samsung. They all need silver to run their programs, which again will link me back to what I want to talk about on the COMEX. But really, uh, you know, one thing that needs to be talked about more, and I don't hear anyone talking about this other than George Gammon, who's a hell of a smart dude. And Isn't he he's great? the one, he's really smart dude. And he's the only one I've heard mentioned that what I'm about to mention. And that is the Chinese Belt Road and Rail Initiative. And, you know, when we talk about as a massive silver deficit, when we talk about a green new uh, uh, agenda, green new deal, uh, and and silver really trading in the deficit for the last two years in a row to the tune of 500 million ounces over two years uh, short between global mine supply and demand, when we talk about only 30% of all the silver coming to the market coming from dedicated silver mines because it is depleting uh, and it just is found as people are digging for gold and other things. Uh, you have uh, a massive, just with that being said right now, a massive supply-demand imbalance. Then you have the Chinese Belt Road and Rail Initiative, and that's underway now. Now, this is the most ambitious human infrastructure project ever in the history of human civilization. This is connecting 65% of human civilization. You're connecting Asia and Africa, not just through maritime channels and roads and, and bridges, but digitally as well. 45% uh, of global GDP and 65% of human population will be connected on this new initiative. And for those people who think that the road to retirement is paved with stock certificates, mutual funds, and dollar bills, I will remind everyone, the United States is not involved in this new global initiative and all of these contracts or the majority of the contracts that are being settled 
in building this massive, huge infrastructure project, the largest in human history, will be settled on the digital Chinese yuan. And so you have a new digital currency, the new digital, digital yuan, where all of this stuff is being settled. So in essence, you are indoctrinating two-thirds of human civilization into a new settlement currency, one that will directly challenge, not maybe overtake yet, but challenge the dollar for world supremacy and in terms of its role as a global world reserve currency. Uh, it may not be overthrown immediately, but do not think for a minute that this is not going to have a massive effect on the value of the dollar and the inflation that it will create by money finding its way back home. A lot of the bonds that the Chinese owned are not being rolled over. They are being used to now finance this massive initiative. In other words, our trade imbalance is financing the destruction ultimately of the dollar as two-thirds of the world will be right. settling on a new digital yuan. So what does that mean for silver? You tell me. Not only are you talking about massive deficits, not only are you saying that 70% of mine supply comes from byproduct mining because the big deposits are gone. Not only do we have all of the bullish fundamentals on a Green New Deal, but you have a new infrastructure project, the most ambitious ever, that will need tremendous amounts of silver and all being financed and settled in a Chinese digital yuan, right. which will have massive implications moving forward, maybe not today, maybe not next year, but in our lifetimes, we will see the dollar being challenged for singular world reserve status. And I will tell you that when you see this type of an ambitious project being settled in, in the Chinese digital yuan, I think people need to think twice about, about their positioning and having all of their wealth wrapped up in dollars because it will come a time where the rubber meets the road. And I think the difference between Asian cultures and U.S. culture is that we think in terms of days, weeks, and months, and they position in terms of decades. 100%. One, I think you're dead on balls with that. And you know what? Well, I don't understand the financial inner workings of it as well as George Gammon does and as well as you do. You know, I've come at this from a different angle, and you, you know, obviously, I'm hawkish on this type of stuff. And, you know, my experience has been kind of from the qualitative side and not the quantitative side because of all the years experience I have in working with helping to reveal U.S. listed China based fraudulent companies. And through that, not only speaking with Chinese nationals and getting a feel for, you know, the ethos of the government. I mean, I'm not some CIA intelligence expert on China, obviously, but I definitely have, I think, a better uh, feel for how China does business than the average mom and pop in the United States. And what's become very clear to anybody that can give them a molecule of their attention is that they are very shrewd. They are very, you know, I said this on my uh, podcast. When did I say this? I just said this a couple days ago. I think I was talking to this dude, Chingo Bling. And I said on his podcast, you know, China is not this is not some childhood game of fucking like hide and seek. Like this is a multi-decade long, this is international, global espionage, right? When you see these uh, Chinese spies being revealed, you know, daily, oh, this guy was in the New York Police Department. This guy was working for Harvard. This guy was doing this. He was a Chinese spy. 
And you see they're revealing, you know, one of them every couple of weeks or every couple months. It's like, well, how many do we not know about? How many are in the country that we don't know about? You know, like this Fang Fang, this woman that was over here. And it's just, we have to sharpen up. Because they're not over here saying, oh, we'll send a guy over for 10 days and we'll steal the secrets and he'll bring them home and that'll be it. It is a systematic kind of, uh, hey man, we're playing for about as much for keeps as you can get in terms of uh, being a human being on the planet Earth. I mean, the, the stakes are very, very, very real. And we are very naive when it comes to this kind of shit. And so your point that like, hey, they're smart enough to realize that this has to happen over 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, or 100 years. You know, they're setting themselves up generationally. And we're thinking about, you know, how are we going to put a Band-Aid on this today or tomorrow? And so I'm constantly taking that perspective that I have and porting it over to the idea of economics and saying it isn't crazy. You know, there's a lot of people say, oh, it would it would take a hot war before the U.S. dollar reserves uh, loses reserve currency. It's like, yeah, maybe. Or it could just take a systematic, you know, a game of inches like we're talking about, right? This little Let project me- that settles in this digital currency just once. And then all of a sudden that becomes a precedent. I mean, you could draw a straight line from that to backing the digital yuan with gold, dumping U.S. treasuries, and if you can't see 10, 20, 30 years down the road, you're, you're blind as a fucking bat, I think. Sorry. Well, that, I, I think that's, that's, that's the home run right there, brother, and you're right. And I do believe gold, being that they levied it to a Tier 1 reserve status that the Bank of International Settlements did, I do believe that, and, and look, that I have said for the last two, uh, three years that that's the biggest event of my career, the fact that they levied it to a, a Tier 1 reserve status uh, meaning it's as good as cash. But let's take a step back from that for one second. First of all, two years ago, I gave a speech at Sprott and, uh, in Vancouver, and I showed a chart that was presented by J.P. Morgan Private Wealth. One of my clients owns an MBA franchise and sent me a letter. I blacked out his name. And the letter basically was addressed to him, and it said, from J.P. Morgan Private Wealth, the group, the division of J.P. Morgan that works with the wealthiest people in the United States. And it said, we want you to mitigate your exposure to U.S. dollar through precious metals and foreign currencies because we believe in the coming years the dollar will be challenged for world reserve status, for singular world reserve status. And it showed a chart going back to the 1400s of all the world reserve currencies that generally had a lifespan of between 40 and 50 years. And if you realize that we left the gold standard or closed the gold window in 1971, we're already living on borrowed time. But to your other point, so all of those things showing what the Chinese are doing, let's look at what they've already done that people don't talk enough about. First, several years ago with the other BRICS nations, Brazil, Russia, uh, India, South Africa, they created a system that mirrors or is very similar to our SWIFT system because that's how the Chinese, or excuse me, the U.S. government penalizes people if they don't like what you're doing like they did to to a bank in France, I forgot the name of the bank, but the bank was doing business with uh, with with Iran, and they penalized them to the tune of four billion dollars, or they'd be kicked out of the SWIFT system. And of course, they paid. So you have all of these. And nations explain for- the SWIFT system real quick to just people that don't know what it is. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, it's just a global clearing system. When money is sent, it has to go through. In order for a, mo- a wire to be sent around the globe or money to be sent, it has to go through a clearing system. The SWIFT system is 
is the global clearing system run by the U.S. And if you're kicked out of the SWIFT system, that means that you cannot send money across the globe. Well, and that's one of the reasons you're seeing cryptocurrencies and a, a new parallel system that would then usurp the SWIFT system so all of these nations can uh, trade and settle trade outside the dollar and outside the ability of the U.S. to impose sanctions by saying, too bad, you're out of the SWIFT system, your money is locked, you can't do anything about it. So the first thing they did is create a parallel SWIFT system. And the second thing the Chinese did, the second and third thing that they did, if you're thinking long term, number two, they create the Shanghai Gold Exchange. Now, the Shanghai Gold Exchange is largely a cash and carry market. They do have some uh, derivative exposure, but most of it is cash and carry. You pay, you get, you go. You don't forward sell everything. You don't ha you don't use it as a speculative vehicle. You use it to buy it and take it. So one of the things that they did, and one of the reasons why the Shanghai Gold Exchange has delivered over 90 times more gold than the U.S. COMEX does, which is the price setting mechanism, is because of what I'm about to tell you here. So as we know, uh, one of the, the strengths of the U.S. dollar is the fact that it's called what? The petrodollar, which means if you want to buy oil or use oil, as everyone, every country does, of course, they have to have dollars in order to pay for it. That was one of the deals that was that was the main deal that was struck between Kissinger and OPEC when we said, we'll protect you, you denominate all of OPEC oil in in dollars, and Saudis said, okay, fine, we'll, you, you protect the Saudi kingdom, we'll only sell it in dollars. So uh, that, that, that's been that way for a long time, right? So what did the Chinese do? They first create the Shanghai Gold Exchange, and then after they do that, they create what is called the Chinese Petro Yuan Bond. Chinese Petro Yuan Bond. Now this bond is what they use to buy oil from Iran and natural gas from Russia, usurping the dollar for settlement. They pay these countries in a bond denominated in yuan. Well, these countries may not want that bond denominated in yuan. Instead, what they are doing is um, taking that bond, which is immediately convertible into gold off the Shanghai Gold Exchange. So they buy, the, the, the countries sell their oil, or their natural gas, they get paid in a bond, denominated in yuan, and convert it immediately into gold, and suck it off the exchange and take it back home. And that's one of the reasons that you've seen uh, China, or that the, the, the uh, Chinese Shanghai Gold Exchange deliver so much more gold than the COMEX market has. And uh, so that is, a, to me, another piece of the puzzle. If you start to break down uh, the petrol reserve or the petrodollar status. You've just taken the major support out of the Jenga tower that the dollar is now. The ability to uh, for everyone to have to demand it because of the petrol reserve status. But you put it all together, you have a system that usurps our main clearing system, which is really the center of 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 all of our strength, really globally in terms of sanctions. You also find a way a workaround for uh, the, the petrodollar status. And lastly, you have a gold center that could very quickly, because of all the bullshit going on in COMEX, migrate the, uh, the real price setting, the real price discovery on the cash and carry um, uh, Shanghai Gold Exchange, which really ought to be the price setting mechanism just based upon the amount of volume. So one of the things that I did want to talk about real quick 
was what we're seeing happen on COMEX. And you know what? Now on the Shanghai Gold Exchange, on the London Metals Exchange, in India, off of the ETFs, and that is massive amount of deliveries. This is something we've never seen before. 2020, I talked about this group on the COMEX called the Others, which is a, a, a third reportable group that really came out of nowhere last year. Do you call is, them that, is, or do they call themselves that? That's what the COMEX calls it. They call them the Others. Okay. So on the on the Commitment of Traders report, there is typically the commercials, which is JP, Goldman, City, uh, and the specs, which would be the hedge funds. Then out of nowhere last year, we see this group, third reportable group called the Others. And those are believed to be sovereign wealth funds and family offices. Now, what they have done that is really unusual is take delivery off of the exchange. Um, so normally, nothing is ever delivered off of COMEX, maybe 1% of contracts, 2%. It's not, wasn't designed to be a delivery mechanism. Um, but in 2020, we were seeing as much gold and silver every month delivered to this group, the others, um, as we would see typically in a year. Uh, they took off a decade's worth of silver last year, well over 300 million ounces in deliveries. But one of the things that I would talk about with Chris Marcus a lot, Arcadia Economics, is this stuff wasn't leaving the building. I wonder if some of these family offices or sovereign wealth funds, or maybe are some of them the big um, industrials like Tesla, like Apple, like Samsung, because what we see happening now is not only a resumption of this same trend, massive deliveries, uh, but we're also seeing for the first time metal leave the building. And so I would, I would, Chris and I would wonder why are they <clears throat> taking possession, even though it comes with a warrant and it is no longer able to be sold by COMEX, it's still within that ecosystem. Why not just pull it out of the ecosystem? Well, we're beginning to see that this month. You're seeing lots of silver leave the COMEX depositories altogether. And I wonder, is that Tesla taking positioning? Is that Samsung, Panasonic, Apple? Are they all realizing ahead of everybody else, because the big players always do, are they realizing that silver is a depleted asset that is necessary for development of their products? And if they don't get it before the shit hits the fan and get it out of the system, what's going to happen? Because you can't make a Tesla battery and you can't make an iPhone or an iPad or a, a, a CD player, or I guess, uh, you know, maybe those are shows my age, or, you know, that show, uh, let's, let, let's call it a, some you sort of audio. You can't make an eight track. Somewhere. You can't make a yeah. laser disc player. Uh, uh, yeah, that, I just aged myself. That. So whatever, <laughs> a flat screen TV for whatever. You need it. You need silver in order for this stuff to happen. So the fact that it is leaving the building, the fact that we saw 90 million ounces backdoored out of SLV, taken away from it, the fact that we're seeing records amount of silver leaving the Shanghai Gold Exchange, the same things happening in, in India, we're seeing metal leave the building. So, you know, it all fits together. All of these things fit together. And to me, they all speak of one phrase, and that is de-dollarization. And the big money is always two or three steps ahead of the rest of us. And if you look at what the big money has done since 2017, it's a common narrative of taking possession of their wealth. And it started, as I told you the first time we talked in 2017, with the central banks around the globe, the German Central Bank, the, the Bank of, of um, the Dutch, the, the German, the Dutch, the Austrian, 
the Polish, uh, the um, Hung the Hungar Hungary Central Bank, Bank of Hungary. I don't know how you say Hungarian. Hungarian, Bank. yeah. Yes. So they're all taking possession of their metal, and now you see it migrating to the largest sovereign wealth funds in the world and the private investors and family offices. And I'm beginning to wonder if it's the industrials as well, all following suit. Major acquisition and removal of third-party counterparty risk by taking possession of it away from the Bank of England, away from the New York Fed, and away and off of the COMEX market and off of the platform of ETFs. They're all doing the same thing. And when you see the largest, most sophisticated, well-funded, well-informed investors on the planet following a similar path, both private and uh, institutional, to me, it, it portrays very, very, uh, uh, well, let's just say I think it, it, it shows that there are big things in store for uh, precious metals moving forward, even though the price does not... Uh, does not uh, show that yet. <laughs> Price is a tool of misdirection. And I would say to you that a stock market that is trading at all-time highs after it literally the, the economy that supports it has been destroyed in many cases, or in large part, it's the same type of distortion where price, price discovery has become impossible. It's the same thing in reverse. On one end, you have demand that is not reflective uh, of, of price. And on the other thing, on the other side, you see price that is not reflective of health of the economy. The, the, the price discovery right now is really very challenging. And that's why I believe price is a tool of misdirection. On one end, it's too low to uh, 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 reflective of the global demand so that people don't rush to it. And on the other hand, price is too high on, on a basis of, of, you know, real life economics. So, now, these are challenging times, Chris, but I would simply say this. Gold and silver are, are not to be acquired to become wealthy. They are acquired because they are wealth, and the wealthiest, most sophisticated, well-funded people on the globe understand that, and for the past several years have been making a concerted effort to do that in a very covert way. I think before this is all said and done, gold will have, like you said, a pegging to a new world reserve order. It will, because no one's going to drink the Kool-Aid ever again if there isn't some sort of a tether to something that will inhibit the, the ability of governments to just inflate away the value of hard-earned labor and hard-earned wealth. And, and that is, in essence, what they've been doing uh, in spades over the last two years. I think you're 100% right. And I think now, with the public catching on, like we talked about earlier, and it becoming more widespread, the understanding of exactly, and listen, that understanding is going to deepen as the years progress. So people that are just understanding, uh, you know, all right, well, we're printing a lot of money now and that can't be good. Maybe in a year's time or two years time are really going to understand exactly how it widens the inequality gap. And they're going to understand the complexities like you're talking about, you know, the dollars don't enter the system until they're loaned out and they're going to, they're going to just get deeper and deeper onto it. And, and as that happens, that really becomes the Achilles heel to the central, you know, they'll start looking into things like CPI and saying, wow, all right, well, these numbers don't really seem to make sense based on, you know, something like the Chapwood index I always bring up or, you know, the cost of living increases that they see at their home. 
and, and, and you know, in the real estate market and other places where it's not captured in CPI. So people are going to start to get it. And that is going to start to uh, hold people's feet to the fire while I think simultaneously is going to put a charge into assets that are central bank resistant. Andy Sheckman, thank you so much. I know this was your second podcast of the day today, my brother. And I just want to thank you so much for taking a, an hour here. Um, anything else uh, you want to tell my listeners? You want to talk about Miles Franklin before you go and let them know what it is that you do? Yeah, a couple. Of, first of all, uh, Chris, you know, I, I'm a big fan of yours. That's I, a good uh, start. I, well, it is, man, and I believe it. I mean, literally, <laughs> literally I I like your no-nonsense, um, honest, uh, and, and, and very candid take on things, and I think that's one of the reasons you're so popular because that – you know, honesty and candor is something that is is uh, to, in my book is is uh, the foundation of, of of a successful relationship. And I just want you to know I appreciate and and uh, and greatly appreciate the ability to come on your show once in a while and, and talk. And I'm honored to to be associated with you even a little bit. Uh, Miles Franklin is um, uh, is is a company I'm also very proud to to. Um, to run and uh, we've been in business now for for 31 years um without a customer complaint and and you know we're we're a company that does things old school uh we are building a brand new website that will enable uh some sort of online purchasing but until that point we are old school and uh, in a world where um identity theft is very pervasive we we want people to give us a call, and and you know we've um, in in 31 years never having a customer complaint is something we're very proud of. We're one of only 27 U.S. Mint authorized resellers in the world. Uh, our reputation is as good as it gets in a federally non-regulated industry. We are licensed and bonded in Minnesota, one of the only companies in the country who can say that um, in a federally non-regulated industry. All of this stuff is why I would like people to give us a call. And when they do, they'll find that our prices over the past 13 months have been lower than any company in the United States. Now, it's a little bit harder to figure that out because for a long time I haven't posted prices. A lot of that has to do with identity theft and fraud and attracting people who go after these companies. Uh, and it has really made all the fraud disappear. Now, we are moving in a different direction, it looks like, due to the the ability of, of uh, new safeguards that will ease my concerns over this. But until then, sorry to be so long-winded on that answer, all, all your listeners need to do is send an email to info at Miles Franklin and put either Chris Iron sent me or Quoth the Raven sent me, and I will personally make sure that their emails are responded to either by myself personally or by my brokers that I have trained myself and make sure that their questions are answered and that they get the very, very, very best price in the United States by any major retailer, period. One last thing. Let's go one uh, step further. Give them your email right now on the show. Come on, do it. All right, fine. You know, you blew up my do email it. last time and, and had me had me underwater, but my email is Andy at Miles Franklin. And anyone who, wants to, anyone who wants to send me that email, I personally – will reply I, I, when it gets so crazy sometimes i have to send some of those <laughs> off or i literally do not sleep but uh, uh, just we will make your next sure. couple of days up yeah yeah thanks man i appreciate that now we will make sure that your listeners are getting the very 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 best price in in the united states and one last piece and i'll let everyone run here 
and that is this. Um, one of the reasons a lot of the companies that you see online have been out of product, uh, I know that for a while you've had a relationship with, with JM Bullion, and they're a good company. Yes, yeah, still there. Uh, yep, and, and JM Bullion is, is wholly owned by now, they sold, and uh, wholly owned by one of the largest distributors in the world, um, a, a company that I know very well and, and work with. Um, we have been around for 30 years. JM Bullion had only been around for, you know, I don't know, 10 or less. We've been around for 30, and we work with all of the big distributors. We work with all of the, the world's mints. We have a, a slew of um, uh, small and mid-sized distributors and 1,500 coin shops around the United States that all send us product. What it basically means is, is that for the past 13 months, I would argue we've had the best supply in the industry and the best prices. And um, we have stayed ahead of things when others have had a hard time doing it. One last thing, and I'll let you go. The way that we've done that, give you an example, with the Perth Mint in Australia. In February, I bought 75,000 silver kangaroos. And you know how I did that? I had to pay three months in advance for April delivery. I had to pay all of it 100% upfront at the highest premiums I've ever paid in 31 years. That is how we're able to do it. We're paying up front, whether it be from the South African Mint, from the Perth Mint, from the UK Mint, from the Austrian Mint, from the Canadian, the US, you name it. We're buying huge amounts. We're going deep into our line of credit. We're going also to small and mid-sized distributors and to coin shops all around the country who send us their, their pre-65 silver or anything that comes in that's substantive because they don't hedge it. They send it to us so we can. Bottom line is this. I believe not only do we have the best reputation in the industry, we have the best pricing and the deepest supply chain. So although it's not as convenient to click on a JM Bullion and buy buy, our prices will be better than theirs. Our selection will be every bit as good or better than theirs. And we are the only, really one of only maybe five fully licensed and bonded companies in the United States in a federally non-regulated industry. So really what that's telling uh, your listeners is that it, I hope is that it's worth their time to send that email to get the best price, the safest service, and uh, in in a company that's been around for 31 years without a complaint. So, yep. and again, the nice Chris, thing, I, the nice thing is too, and we've talked about this privately before, also too, is that you guys, you know, you coexist well. I mean, everybody's on the same team. I know that the guys at Jam Bullion are very nice guys, and they're honest guys. And I speak to them, and I know I could say the same about you. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's just uh, it's nice. We're all kind of on the same team. I think we all kind of see things similarly, uh, similarly situated. And uh, I, I love having you on the podcast. I, I love ordering from them. I just it's nice to be surrounded by people that I think, in my opinion, just just get it. And uh, yeah, sorry. Were you it goes, it, there, oh, yeah. No, I was going to say you're right. And, and they're one of the good guys. And, and there there are a few. They're at the top of the list, no question about it. Never heard a derogative word about them ever, and uh, and that that says a lot. So it also says a lot that even with your affiliation, you're you're willing to have me come on the show and talk, and and I do appreciate that. That shows uh, your objectivity and kind of person that you are. So uh, I do appreciate it. I'm honored to be here, and uh, I'm willing to come back whenever you need me, whether it be on a you know every six months or whatever it is the way we've done it before or if there's something you want to chat about please feel free to give me a call and have me on at, at, at the you know at a moment's notice i'm just a text or a phone call away chris i'm 
truly honored to be associated with a guy like you. And uh, I wish you and, and yours nothing but the best and, and good health until the next time we talk. And uh, again, just to send an email to info at Miles Franklin or Andy at Miles Franklin and say, but don't do both because you're going to get doubled up or you may get two people calling you. <laughs> uh, either one. And uh, put uh, Chris Iron sent me or, or quote the Raven sent me. We'll make sure you get an updated price list. You'll get the best prices, personal service. And um, I just appreciate the opportunity to chat with you, Chris. And I hope you have a great rest of your day, brother. Truly been a pleasure, Andy. Thank you so much for your perspective. And we will definitely, we'll have you back on in a couple months, brother. Talk to you soon. All right, dude. Take it easy. Talk soon. Bye-bye. That was the one, the only Andy Shackman. Ah, a lot of nice words there at the end. Good dude. And you know what? I don't have him on for the sales pitch, but I like, uh, I don't mind giving him time to do his sales pitch because I, if you want to call it that, I mean, I think he's just talking about what he does. I think he really does take pride in what he does. And uh, I, I like having him do that because I really genuinely enjoy having him on the show and his perspective. And I think we covered a lot of ground today. And I think he's uh, just valuable from an information perspective. And so there's a lot of love to go around in the bullion industry. My man, Andy Sheckman will be on again soon. For now, folks, I am out of here. Thank you for joining me. Thanks to my patrons for your continued support. Peace!